Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely delighted to welcome writer, coach, and podcast host, Becca Piestrelli, whose debut book is titled Root and Ritual. Root and, uh, Root and Ritual, sorry, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. Root and Ritual is a beautiful guide that offers a pathway back to connection and wholeness through rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, while it encourages us to access our intuition, tune into our bodies, and awaken the wild woman within. Becca will be speaking to us from San Anselmo, California, where she lives with her partner and child. I'm looking forward to talking with Becca about how her book was inspired by her own sense of loneliness and unbelonging in life, why the current time we live in is called the age of loneliness, the ways women have rebirthed themselves from grief and loneliness through her work, how we can each awaken the wild woman within us, and more for what promises to be a highly engaging and very inspiring interview. Hey, Becca. A warm, heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to so be my here. Pleasure. So my pleasure, Becca. I really enjoyed your book and it's so beautifully done. It's just a beautiful book. Yeah, I know. I can't take credit for the illustrations. That's Amy Grimes, a UK based. Oh, she's talented. She's yeah, wonderful. She's wonderful. I loved it. So let's start by you explaining to everyone how your book, Root and Ritual, was inspired by your own sense of loneliness and unbelonging throughout your life. And describe the growth and rebirth you experienced when you were writing the book and became a new mom. Mm. Yeah, well, the book, the book really came out of a lifelong, I didn't really have the words for it until maybe the last 10 years, a lifelong, I call it an existential ache a real sense of like not belonging. And that's more than just not fitting in with a friend group. It was like not, not feeling like at home in my body, not feeling like I lived in the right place. Sometimes I didn't feel like I had the right family, like the black sheep syndrome in so many ways, even at times being like, am I supposed to be on earth? Like this really um, interesting feeling of being displaced. And um, that has a a deep historical context that I talk about in the book of so many of us feel versions of that. Uh, And so the book is something that really I created as a, as a way to show the path I've been taking to feel more rooted, more connected, more grounded, more here at home in myself, in the natural world uh, where I live in my family, in my family community, uh, in my body. 
So, um, and then, yeah, it's, it's organized in land lineage community in the self, the four areas that I have found to be the most effective at looking at in these times we live in. And yeah, I wrote, I wrote the book pregnant with my first child in lockdown in the early days of well, lockdown. At least you had things to do. You weren't too bored while you were going through lockdown. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. 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 That's true. It did give me something to do. Um, although, you know, I, I talk about loneliness as a profession and I was like being pregnant and lockdown was peak loneliness, mm. you know, and I needed people to come and like touch my growing belly and talk to me and bring me, you know, like, um, ginger ale. Like there was none of that was happening. Like this was the time when like, we were like afraid to be near each other. And, um, so that actually informed the book. I actually added a death chapter because the pandemic was just so informing me of like this deeper need we all had to feel connected to each other. And then, and I also write in the chapter in the community section about the importance of rites of passage is the sense that all of us as human beings go through these massive radically like transitory experiences. And the ones we've really kept in society are like getting married, having a baby, but you know, there, everyone has them, these moments of you're changed. There's no before, like, there's no going back. And so I was going through one of mine, I was becoming a mother and I gave birth. And then a month later I edited the book. And then a year later I launched the book and I, I completely changed. <laughs> and I, I've, I'm a new being in so many ways. And there has been, and I've been grieving the person I was before. And I've been wanting more community people to witness me has changed. And there were so many, and I'm writing about it at the same time, but I'm writing during a time when I wasn't getting that. I wasn't getting that from a community perspective. So of course it's like a big underlying highlight bold to like the need I'm speaking to really affirmed my work in life, um, but also really showed me the pain, the pain that I'm talking right. about that so many of us are experiencing in so many different ways which is a feeling, a sense of being alone and lonely in a time when we really need each other most. You're absolutely right. I'll bet. And I, I'm wondering now, in a way, with coming out with your new book, it's part of the new you celebrating the new you and the way you, the way you transitioned and transformed, I would think. But why do you call the current age we're living in the age of loneliness? And how is loneliness different than solitude? Mm -hmm. I did not come up with that term. Uh, that's, that's a term being shared around by certain great thinkers. I heard uh, George Monbiot say it, uh, and he is an environmental um, journalist and activist based out of the UK. Uh, another term is that we are living in the Eremocene, E-R-O-E-R-E-M-O-C-E-N-E, -E -E, that um, are some called the Anthropocene, that we're living in a time where the effects are really the effects in, of history on the planet are being made by humans, Anthropocene. And so this Aeromacene is also seeing this time that um, we are lonely. That really is what it means, the age of loneliness. So when I heard this term, it just sort of lit up my whole body where I just, I thought, okay, yeah, we are more technologically connected than ever before. Like you and I, Irene, can message over like 25 different platforms. Absolutely. 
And yet in recorded history of, of human mental health, which is recent over, you know, this expanse of humans on earth, there is a rapid increase in a sense of um, anxiety, depression, and loneliness. So the difference between loneliness and solitude is, I think we can all really tune in. One is a pain state and one is nourishing. I have many introverts challenge me, like, I like being alone. And I'm like, and yet, and yet you as a human animal, you, yeah, you may be alive in 2022, but your human animal body is still has still has origins in the fact that we need each other to survive, to protect each other, to feed each other, to get through moments when we're sick. Like we truly, truly need each other. So we're in this interesting moment in history where like this individualist minded thing of like making it on your own is the peak sort of way of being, particularly in the industrialized world, harms us in a lot of ways, really harms us. And when do we feel that? We feel that in a deep rite of passage like death and grieving, like sickness, like having I a child. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're yeah, doing so, your solitude, but then all of a sudden something happens and you really need that community. You need people to show up for you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. I totally get that. So tell us, cause this was fascinating your book. When you talk about the reasons our adult friendships are often difficult to create and maintain aside from COVID time, when you can't yeah. even talk to each other beyond your mask, but why is it that I kind I related to that, but let's share that with our listeners. Why, why are adult friendships difficult to create and maintain these days? Yeah, I mean, I relate to it too. I'm, I'm in it with you too. Yeah, I think there's a way in which, um, well, just from a historical perspective, there's been over time, uh, there's been developments in um, industry and mobility that have taken us away from each other. Like mm -hmm. uh, the advent of cars made it so that we wouldn't run into each other on the streets of the village or the city or the town, you know? And before then there was like communal structures. And now we have this thing where we all live in our own homes instead of sharing dwellings, instead of even having our homes positioned so that they were all connected to each other. This is the whole concept of the village that is talked about a lot in, I don't know, the zeitgeist, the collective. Uh, and so we are alive in a time also where we're, um, we've got our inboxes constantly filling and we've got social media constantly going. There's always something to do. So we have this sense of busyness. It's actually quite a radical act to choose to slow down, to choose to be less busy. And I actually think that meaningful friendship can happen when we choose to make our lives smaller, there's a way we as human beings have been stretched so thin by like, by what's happened in technology and industry that, you know, you and I are talking on the internet right now. There's so many blessings to it that has made it so that we actually are um, what I call like emotionally infantile. Like we have an emotional immaturity with what it takes to really put energy in to connection. There's also the fact that we change and grow over time, right? So I'm having this experience being in my late thirties of, of really being different from the woman I was in college and in my twenties, where there's like a different kind of conversation I want to have. I want to walk away from criticism. I want to walk away from gossip. I want to walk away from these things. And some people, some friends moved with me and other friends couldn't a difference in 
also, again, you and I can relate in a massive life experience that changes who we are, that changes our spiritual awareness. And then there's the sense of like, who are my people now? And, and those people can be changing depending on your circumstance. Yes. Yeah. And I think we also don't have a lot of modeling from particularly our parents' generation, you and me both, uh, of like what it means to be with um, disagreement, to be with conflict. I don't know about you, but I'm very conflict averse, you me know, too. to, me yeah, too. <laughs> right. So, so there's ways in which we um, are just needing to build the skills. So I talk about that in the community section about what does it take to build the skills to create depth in our friendships and to really create a tight knit community that we can grow with. Yeah. You're really helping people to change and become conscious and how they can change their lives for the better. I think it's wonderful. And you talk about practicing establishing boundaries that protect our and honor our needs when we engage with people of differing backgrounds and perspectives. So we're talking about reaching out to people and creating our tribe, so to speak, but then sometimes they have very different backgrounds, different perspectives. So how do you handle that? What is your advice for handling that, for establishing those boundaries that protect and honor our needs when people don't agree with us or they come mm-hmm. from a different place? Right. That's very timely in this, in this moment in the culture. That's why it's another, that's, I was like, oh, I got to ask this one. Absolutely. Well, the first thing I want to say is from a nature perspective, a healthy ecosystem is one that is diversified is one where like the healthiest soil is not where all the same plant is grown in it. Literally like an ecosystem of which we are a part of is healthiest when there is a diverse amount of plants, beings, microbes, animals, you know, like feces from birds and then little crawling insects and then roots of trees. Like that is going to be the most fertile, most life-creating, life-giving environment. So this is what I remember when I find myself in an echo chamber, in a space of sameness, which is really a response to to wanting to feel safe. We feel safest when we're around like-mindedness. And yet, is that the healthiest way to move forward in a culture? Now, this is all very um, intellectualized, right? Okay, so I want to have more diversified ecosystems. And then comes the moment of conflict, disagreement. And that's, again, I'm going to go back to what I just said before, where we have to have some grace and compassion for the ways in which we don't have the skill set yet to navigate those kinds of conversations. And I certainly don't think they should be happening on Facebook walls and Instagram posts and Twitter. They need to be happening where you can read body cues. You can breathe together. You can ask for space to integrate. You can cry. You can feel empathy. There's the way in which we are animals. This is what I'm going to keep saying. We are animals. We are. Oh yeah. We're we're definitely part of that whole system. Yeah. And so, right. I don't have the answer to your question of like how, but so I I bring up boundaries to be like, we can lean into this discomfort and we can always, I think a lot of us, particularly people pleasers or caretakers forget about how, if we're so caring about like a harmonious interaction, we can sort of forget ourselves. And the fact that we can say like, this is a no go. 
this isn't, or even calling upon it spiritually. I protect myself. I call upon the strength of my ancestors to walk away if things don't feel safe. Like there are ways in which I'm asking us to stretch and create more diversity of conversation and also honor when I also think we could slow down conversation. There's something about the internet pace that makes us think we need to like respond. And what if we took a week to just (laughs) integrate and feel before we responded? Well, you know, you're reminding me when you look, when you get, um, when you're with a group of people these days, what are they doing? They're not even making eye contact. They're looking at their phones. Well, it's been engineered for us to look at. It's really, it's it's a tough thing to move out of. I wonder sometimes if kids are going to lose social skills. Well, that's that's what's being noticed. Back and forth. I mean, just relating to each other. So you give these wonderful examples of rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom that can serve as pathways back to connection and wholeness, which is a lot about what we're talking about. So how about giving... And, if, and, and I'm going to tell our listeners and those watching on YouTube, if your book has wonderful, varied ways that people can connect uh, to plant those seeds, to plant those seeds. So mm. would you like to give us some examples of that? Yeah, I think when people hear ritual, they might think of church or some religion or, um, or something ornate. It might feel a little bit like scary and And really ritual is when I talk about ritual, I talk about something that all of us have a right to do in our lives. And probably a lot of us already do and don't even know it. Uh, Like the ways in which we like make our morning coffee or the ways we greet our neighbors, or there's just so many little rituals, um, idiosyncratic things we do in our lives that bring us comfort and meaning. And that's what a ritual is. Something that brings you meaning. And so the one that I often tell for people who are like, start me with something. So I say your morning shower or your evening shower, whenever you shower, right? We've got a shower. And so instead of just seeing it as something you got to do to get clean, what if you can look at the water, water, the element, right? This, this, this tool of life, that flows around where I live. It's, you know, it's, it's a precious, precious, precious resource. How can we see it as a way to have a cleansing, clearing sort of purifying nature? So getting in your shower and thinking, what is it you want to cleanse off of you, move off of you? And just visualizing that as the water pours over your head and down your back and across your body, there is a ritual right there. And I know that in the early days of motherhood, when I was very, very sleep deprived and there was, you know, the coffee wasn't doing it. I was just so tired. I had a friend say like, use your morning shower to call energy into your body. So I remember I would get into the shower. It was like the only 10 minutes I'd have to myself. And I would ask the water to like clear me of the fog of the night and just to pour into me energy from like, from the water, from, from the earth, from the sky. It's like, I'm calling, I would just say, I'm calling on whatever I can get to get energy into my body so I can meet this day. That's a ritual. And it worked. 
it helped. It got me through. It helped. Got you through. Yeah. It helped. Yeah. That's a ritual. Give us an example of what you call a recipe and the ancestral wisdom. Hmm. Yeah, I offer some recipes in there. I really think that a lot of us, you know, we saw this in the early days of the pandemic when everyone was making sourdough starters and seeds were selling out and baby chickens were selling out. There's this, there's this way in which we haven't forgotten how to work with our hands. And most of us are tap, tap, tapping, working with our hands, but there's a way, particularly my generation uh, and even like younger has lost that. And that is really, you know, it's, I like this uh, busy, busy hands, quiet mind. There's a way in which moving of your hands can, so many of us have anxiety and stress and overactive monkey minds, the way in which working with your hands. And, and so I give recipes, not just for food. I talk about food preservation and making ancestral foods and all that stuff, but I tell you how to make certain crafts. I talk about um, I talk about salts, working with salts and herbs. I talk about um, making fragrant flower water, like rose water. And I walk you through it. And it's not to be like, here's another recipe to know. It's to get you. It's not you. another to-do list. It's to help you connect. Yeah, there's a purpose here. Connect with your hands and mm -hmm. making something to remember that you can create at any moment. Yeah, that's wonderful. And how does bringing what's sacred, you call bringing what's sacred into the mundane of our daily lives, how does that improve our mental health? And God knows we can use improvement of people's mental health these days. Yeah. Well, yeah, like I was going back to this, um, going back to what I was saying about that we probably already have rituals in our lives that we're not even aware of. Like there are tasks we do every day that we can really, that can bum us out, right? That can feel like unadventurous or like Groundhog Day, right? Like, oh, gotta empty the dishwasher again. And there's a real, there's a way we can shift our perspective on that to really bring the magic into the mundane, as you mm -hmm. said, to really see that like our ancestors, what did our ancestors do before podcasts and, you know, like home music speakers and um, TV to like get them through the day. It's like, would they sing as they swept their floors? Would they, sure. yeah. What would they call into their, you know, as they drink their drinks as they, so just think about that when you make your morning coffee or you drink the water, you mop your floors, or you, you know, clean out the old stinky food in the fridge of like, I really do think a nice sort of primer here is like, bringing in and clearing out and that's so much of like what we do every day is you know like emptying the dishwasher drinking water. like what are you bringing in and what are you clearing out you're and actually like talking about to me you're actually talking about people even doing the mundane in a very conscious way yes not intentional and very, very intentionally not taking anything for granted and and seeing that um and tell me the difference between sharing with integrity and sharing outside of integrity you talked mm. about that i love that mm -hmm. yeah i'm talking about gossip <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, so yeah i mean talking about gossip when you talked about that Oh no, no, it, that's how it, that's how it comes up for me right now as someone who is recovering gossiper and has given myself a lot of grace in the fact that that's me looking for connection. But what I mean with sharing with integrity is that check-in, right? So like I notice when I feel the urge to gossip, if I check in and say, 
is this an integrity to share? Is this my story to share? Is this the moment to share it? Um, I think so many of us are moving so fast because the machines that we work on have this pace, but what if we could slow down and check in on the moments that we are reacting, responding, sharing a story of someone else's, if we can have that moment, I've even stopped myself mid-sentence. I mean, like, I actually, I'm going to have to reroute us to another topic because this is actually out of integrity. What if we all did that? Oh my God, that'd be wonderful. Sometimes I think that people gossiping and doing that, they're, they, they're so bored. They just need to create drama in their lives. It kind yeah. of fills in some of that emptiness. Totally. It, it can be a way to fill the void or it can be a way to divert from pain mm -hmm. or it can be a way to feel more connected when you're feeling quite lonely. Um, I've, I've, I used to be pretty harsh on gossip, but as a former gossip, I actually have a lot of compassion to my former self of like what need I was trying to fulfill right, exactly. in, in a misdirected way. Yeah. But that's really honest of you to say that about yourself. I mean, that's really <laughs> you're exposing your vulnerability and being so authentic. So, um, and this is so important, Becca, why, and this is what I really think you're getting down to with everything. Why is it important for each of us to take a thorough and lasting look at our relationship with our own self? And why is it important to be patient with ourselves and so many people? Mm -hmm. there's no self-love and there's no patience for them mm -hmm. others for themselves so would you like to talk to that yeah yeah the fourth section of the book is all about belonging to ourselves and that's a pretty foundational piece right we, we're just looking so outside of ourselves for a feeling of validation or worthiness which is what a lot of us do because our culture teaches us that um particularly if we sort of have, if we have certain feelings about um, the way we were raised, which a lot of us do. Um, and just like the culture around us, particularly women, it's, we don't have a lot of um, affirming models for loving ourselves. It's changing now, but yeah. So taking a really a deep and honest and truthful look at our relationship with ourselves, it's, it's, it can be, it can be quite confronting. And I do have some activities in the book that ha have you take a look at the way, like our inner, like our self-talk. I always like to ask this, the way you're talking to yourself, would you talk to a child that way? Would you talk to a beloved pet that way? Would you talk to a best friend that way? Why do we talk to your, ourselves that way? And I think the getting honest is a way to um, shift, shift the story. And the patience part is key compassion for the ways, you know, like deep real change takes time. Sustainable change takes time. I am a baby step person because I find the baby steps and just keeping at them. Even if you fall off, come back and keep going. I think that's the way we actually make change. I agree with you. And, and I think a lot of people in their upbringings and all, they're not taught to respect themselves. They were taught no. to take care of everyone else. So you're talking about people really consciously transitioning and becoming more conscious uh, mm. of their behavior to themselves, which brings me to my favorite question. In what ways do you suggest we awaken the wild woman within each of us? Um, and uh, let's talk to that. 
Because oh, some yeah. of, a lot of our a lot of our people listening and watching do not know they have a wild woman inside of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do. You do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this this goes. This is along the lines of what I was saying that we're all animals. And I don't just mean you're a wild wolf person who wants to howl at the moon and tear your clothes off. I mean, that doesn't sound so terrible. I know. I don't, I don't mean that either, but it could scare some people. I think, I think there is this way we have forgotten our true nature. And again, it makes sense given just like the course of history that we are of the earth. We are of the stars. We are of the trees. And we are of the animals, we are of the soil. We will go back to it, right? And so this is our true nature to be waxing and waning with the moon, to be highly emotional and then uh, really quiet. I talk about seasonal and cyclical living in the book. Like there's a way in which our culture wants us to be static, wants us to not have highs and lows, but that is the human experience. You talking about grief know this more than anyone. And so I want to validate that parts of ourselves that maybe we feel like are unsafe or um, not welcome here or are going to be judged. And that just reminded that that is your innate way. It is our innate way. So when I say returning to the wild woman within, I am speaking to those of us that identify as women. Um, but I also speak to everyone. <laughs> we have right. a wildness within us and that we can return to, whether that means tearing off your clothes and howling at the moon, or it means just like bucking the system when it tells us to, to not have our emotions, when it tells us not to grieve deeply, when it tells us not to celebrate wildly, when it tells us not to have moments of real internalness, what I'd call an inner winter and, and the opposite to have a really wild, expansive summer, whenever that is, mm-hmm. you know, in your life to not age to not bleed, to not have all these parts of ourselves that are so innate. There is a way in which our culture has made it wrong and it's not wrong. And I think the best way we can do it is to talk about it, to, to gather together in person, to sing the songs, to eat the food together. You know, the internet's great too. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Accept each other. Right. For exactly who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Makes so much sense. Could you share one or two real life stories of people you've helped through your work so that people listening to us and watching can get a real idea uh, how much your book will help them and how these, you know, how your ideas can work in their lives? Yeah, sure. So um, in the lineage section of the book, I talk about um, my, my identity, my identity as a white woman. And how there is a real sense of being raised uh, in uh, the modern day United States and not being a child of immigrants. My, my ancestors immigrated quite a, quite a while ago and having a real experience of feeling cultureless, of feeling like, um, of feeling like an orphan mm. who didn't belong I, you know, I live here, we all live on stolen land, like where do I belong? And so I started doing ancestral pilgrimages back to my ancestral lands um, in Ireland, in England, in Scotland. And so I took, um, I took a bunch of women to Ireland two years in a row who also identified 
um, ancestrally with having lineages that track to that part of the world. And uh, yeah, we just had such a powerful experience. And I remember um, so many of the women by the end of the trip, really crying tears of feeling like, oh, these are the soils that fed my ancestors. These are the soils that contain, you know, the composted bones of my ancestors, like these mountains, these waters, a real sense of connection. You know, we all flew back home to our, our homes, wherever it was, which was not in Ireland, but there was a sense of like, oh, this is a place where I come from. And what that does is it reweaves the tattered threads that happen through assimilation and colonization that sort of tear us from where we've come from, whatever our, whatever our story is. And there are many of them because we have millions of ancestors. But I remember witnessing this moment, even at, we had a grieving ritual. We had a group, do you know about the Irish grievers? They're called keeners, keening moaners. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, so many, because you talk about cultures in which death is treated as a communal experience. So that that's an example. Yeah. So, um, that's something we've lost here in, in our modern culture, um, but it's not lost everywhere. And I, I speak to the Irish keeners, uh, because, um, because I remember watching a YouTube video of this woman keening outside a church and she, she was hired by the family to moan and grieve for those, for the whole community. And I thought, wow, what, first of all, the way in which we are such like a death phobic, grief phobic society of wanting to let everyone have their private experience. I don't want to bother them. They're having their private experience and actually flipping it on its head and being like, no, when one member of the community dies, the whole community grieves and how we've lost that. And I remember we went into this forest in um, oh, this part of Ireland. I can't remember the name of it right now. And I just invited us to grieve if we wanted to sit with the rocks. And there was so much beauty. I mean, it was a really held sacred container of just like crying onto the stones and crying into the trees and moaning, maybe not even knowing what we were grieving. Some did, some didn't, but to have that communal experience of just as much as we love a dance party and cheersing to a celebration to all hold hands and grieve because grief is just as present. Like death is just as present as birth. Absolutely. They are equal sides of the same coin. But people are afraid of the other side of the coin, so they don't want to talk about it. As if it's contagious. Oh, I'll never forget once I was with a group of women and um, I made a very, I deal with grief and rebirth and, you know, it's part of life. And I made a comment about we're all going to die. And one woman threw up her hand. She says, don't say that to me. Oh, as if it was like a secret. Right, right. You can't mention it. It may make it happen. I mean... So in that, yeah. you know, right. So in that spirit, what would you like to tell everyone about how we can be helpful to someone who is grieving? Mm -hmm. Because in this society, people don't know what I remember when I lost my husband, some people brought me soup. Some people called me, can I help you? What are ways that you that you think that people can do that since they've lost the art of, yeah. of connection? And that's yeah. Yeah. This is something I feel really strongly about um, as 
death sort of touches me more and more as I get older, right? As it does, as it does. And I think the first thing I just want to say here is you're not going to do it perfectly because no one can, because we're so, because grief is a horror at times. And if, if we take a perfectionist view of this, of like doing a good job supporting the grief, the grieving ones, you got the wrong idea here. Like, like be willing to bring the wrong lasagna, be willing to, to say, what do you need? And the person say, I hate that question. I don't know what I need, but keep showing up. Right. That's, that's what all my friends who have experienced deep grief say, like, it just, it was great that you showed up, even if like I threw the casserole away because it was gross, but like, thank you for bringing, cause it's the energy. Right. And I also like on a practical level, like clean their toilets, empty their dishwasher, set up, like, you know, like set up their, help them, you know, open the pass, the password protected phone of the loved one who's died, help them call to get the death certificate, like do the unsexy things, you know, like take their kids and, and for a day so that they can like sit and cry. Like it doesn't always look like holding their hand in silence, you know, in a garden. It's often like the unsexy things that really matter. This is one I love, which is just texting someone and saying, I'm heading to the grocery store. I'm going there anyway. What can I pick up for you? I'll just drop it off. That's these so little things. Absolutely true. That's great. Yeah. Becca, what are the best ways for members of our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience to connect with you? Of course, we know your book is on Amazon and they're going to want to get that book, but how, if they want to reach out to you, uh, give us yeah. all information. Well, I have a podcast too. If you're of the podcast kind, which you probably are, if you're listening to us, uh, it's called Belonging and Belonging with Becca P. Estrelli. It's a red, it's a red um, graphic. So you'll look and you can see that. Uh, and then, yeah, you can, I send out um, a newsletter called Slow and Seasonal. I send it out slow and seasonally. And you can go to beccapiastrelli.com slash subscribe if you're interested in that. And I, yeah, if this, if this topic of these topics of conversation um, are interesting to you, yeah, check out my book, Root and Ritual. It's available everywhere. Okay, that's wonderful. And what is the Becca tip for finding joy in life? Slow down. Okay. But like, let me, let me just tell you what I mean. It's going to be challenging at first because it counters all of the cultural sort of things around moving quickly and needing to meet deadlines. But we are giving each other permission when we allow ourselves to make our worlds slower and smaller. And I do think that is the antidote to the loneliness and suffering and anxiety and burnout that so many of us are experiencing is to remember that we are animals of the earth and the earth operates at a pace much slower than our cell phones do. Oh, very wise, very wise. You know, Becca, I absolutely love this quote from yours from your book, Root and Ritual, which I find this is a, such an inspiring, first of all, your book is so inspiring and wise, but this quote is great. And it's, it says, dare to color outside the lines of life in shades of you, because that is how you welcome the parts of yourself that feel like they don't belong. 
that is how you heal. <laughs> That's such a wise quote. Thank okay. you from my heart for this enlightening interview. So filled with healing guidance for the burgeoning wild and, wild and wise woman inside each of us. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on irieweinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and especially on YouTube. Like, subscribe, and hit notify to make sure you'll get the inspiring new interviews like this one with Becca coming your way. Thank you so much. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.